You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, this is Doc G, and today we're going to earn and invest with Mike McDermott of FreshBooks and learn how to take an idea and make it into a business. I had never planned on becoming a business person. I was a physician, and when I came out of medical school and residency, I joined a group practice where everything was managed for me. And after that, when I saw that I had a better opportunity in private practice, I joined a well-established group where all the procedures were already settled. I slipped right into a partnership role without ever having to really build the business itself. It was already there. So when I finally made the move to a concierge practice all on my own, I felt a little bit like I was jumping off the deep end. I remember a few months before, I had built a template of pages and pages of to-do lists and things to think about and plans for day one of the business. But the truth is, when I got there, I was no more ready than when I had began that list a few months ago. And what I had found was that most of the questions, I could either look up the answer, or they were one phone call away, or occasionally I just had to dig in and make a decision whether right or wrong. It was my first venture into entrepreneurship and owning a business, and I was completely green and yet strangely ready for the challenge. And speaking of entrepreneurship, have you ever checked out the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast with Coach Carson? Chad Carson is a good friend of mine, and if you're interested in building a real estate empire or just buying a few properties to balance out your portfolio, he is the guy to listen to. He not only does single episodes by himself where he tells you the tips and tricks, but also has guests on who can tell you all about how they made it work. It is a great podcast. I suggest you check it out. Go to coachcarson.com or find the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson wherever you listen to find podcasts like this one. Mike McDermott is the co-founder and former CEO of FreshBooks, a provider of accounting software on the cloud for self-employed professionals. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doc. I don't know if you noticed, but I stuck in the word former CEO of FreshBooks. You recently made an announcement in January that you were handing over the reins. Tell me about that decision. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah February 1st today, but January 14th, so about two weeks in here, two, two and a half weeks. The, the truth is, I, I've been the founding CEO of FreshBooks for almost two decades, so 17, 18 years. And I, I loved it. Uh, we're 500 people today. Our, the next phase of our business is really around expanding globally. Two years ago, I, I, we brought a gentleman in who started three days a week with us, who is a really seasoned operator. His name's Don. And uh, long story short, we've been working together. The partnership's been great. And uh, he went from three to four days, and now he's going to five. And you know, we're both at five now, and maybe one day I'll go to four. But uh, <laughs> I'm staying on as chair of the board and as a member of the executive team. Don and I continue to partner the two of us, and then we work with the executive team and the board to to run the business. So still very much involved, but he now gets to you know take on a bunch of the day to day accountabilities uh, that I used to have, and uh, I get to just focus on the things I love doing, uh, and that is that is super exciting. After all these years, it's a real a real 
real privilege. So it's an exciting new period for me. And uh, yeah, we're a couple of weeks in and I'm loving it. Is it difficult to let go of some of the control? I will put it down to having had two years partnering with Don. We, you know, we're pretty different animals, but at our core, we see things we have very we have differences of opinion. We agree on very little, but we align on everything. But our fundamentals, like I guess our value set and you know the core decisions we go back to are are, are super aligned. He he is a multi-time founder of businesses. And so he he's run businesses of several thousand employees, but he's also founded several businesses. And so I think that dimension for you know, once you start a few businesses, there's there are these common things around how you think about employees and customers that you don't necessarily get just growing up in the corporate world. And so he and I just have a great partnership. And so the short answer is no. In fact, I'm actually more excited about continuing to lead the company and in the ways that, you know, I have been for, for some time going forward than I think I would have been if I was just sitting in the CEO chair, because, <laughs> you know, it's uh, ready for a change. It's been a couple of decades and, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a really, it's a really good transition time for me. So you mentioned it's been a couple decades. Let's go back to the starting place. You came out of college and did you ever work for someone else or did you jump right into starting your own business? So the closest I really came from working for anybody else was to be a summer camp counselor (laughs) during my undergrad years. (laughs) So so I like, have I ever had an office job? No, I worked on a couple couple of commercial film productions as well for a couple of years and I was just figuring out what to do. But but pretty quickly I was I was actually building websites and then doing that for other people. And and I, in fourth year in undergrad I started two businesses. And that's where the web design business came out of one of those. So so the short answer is no. And tell me, did I miss hear this? I think I was listening to a podcast you were on and you said you left college early. Did you finish up fourth year? In fourth year, I was in the business school program. It was like world-class business school. It's called the Smith School of Business now, but Queen's Business School in uh, Toronto, Canada. I'm Canadian. Anyways, at the time, it was the number one non-U.S. business school in the world. I don't know what that means, but the point is I, I left the program in fourth year. I did end up finishing, really, I think, for my parents, a check of box and got a BA, and I'd taken lots of English electives. So, you know, technically, I have almost all of a commerce degree and a little bit of an English degree. I took English and computer science electives throughout my business business period. So that was, yeah, that's how we wound things down. And so I have a degree air quotes, but my focus really shifted on doing things that I, I just found that I found, I learned a lot in that program. I don't give it enough credit, but I, I didn't, I didn't find I loved learning about business as much as I seem to love creating founding and scaling businesses. You know, it begs an interesting question. You kind of said, I checked off the box and I air quotes. You know, a lot of it points to the fact that a lot of people today are looking at your traditional college education and questioning whether it arms you with the skills you need to go into the work world, whether that be your own business or the corporate world or what have you. Did school prepare you for starting these businesses? I know your first business was a a website building business. Do you think that school was necessary? And if so, did it prepare you? I'm going to say both emphatically yes and emphatically no. (laughs) (laughs) So let me let me pull that apart. I, as I say that with the business school background, I I took a lot in through osmosis. And those were some years where, you know, those in my 
late teens, early 20s. And I, I could have applied myself to a greater degree, but a lot went in through osmosis. And frankly, I got interested in like economics and things like that in high school. So I took a bookkeeping class in grade 10, and then I took an economics class. And the only academic award I ever won was uh, actually in that, that the, in the economics course where I was kind of the, the top student kind of won the award at prize day at the end of the year. So I, I, I did have an interest in those things. When I got to undergrad, I was less into it. But, but, you know, I showed up to class and, you know, I learned about economic, you know, macroeconomic theory and, and accounting and all this stuff. And so that was there and imbued in me. And so, so in that sense, I think it did set me up for a lot. I, and I'll just underscore this point by saying one of my founders was an engineer and he had gone and worked in a consulting company after, after his education as electrical engineer. And he always wanted to go take an MBA course to learn about it. And I was sitting there saying, well, we're, you know, like you'll never get an education at school like we're getting right now. <laughs> but, but I think it also, I was probably minimizing the, the benefit of having had that, that background to, to just help with some things. So then the, the flip of that is it, it really did not prepare me to be an entrepreneur at all in some other regards. What I find about education, this is my opinion, I know some schools are trying to change this now, but you don't really learn about leading or teams or kind of setting a vision and a lot of this squishy stuff. And I would go so far as to say in the education I got, which was a great one, I, you know, there was no opportunity to discover within myself being an entrepreneur from classwork. Like you wouldn't know what it was. I could not tell you what an entrepreneur really was from school that it did not seem like an obvious career path in any way. I kind of stumbled into it basically based on my nature. And so for, for these reasons and more, I would say, no, it did not, did not prepare me. And I have some strong biases with uh, the specifics, you know, I'm sort of working on, but I, I really, I do feel like the education system needs to change to be more experiential and to uncover more of these qualities in more people. And as the world works to more collaborative work and these kinds of things, I do find those things, those things are important. But, you know, even business school that had group work, you don't get to choose the people. Right? You know, there's a lot you don't get to decide in that stuff. So it's, it's not, it's not totally comparable in my books. Yeah, there are a lot of threads to pull on with what you just said, especially kind of this difference in didactic teaching versus experiential learning. I'm interested in this idea of some of that squishy stuff. Your first business was a website building business. Talk to me about how that evolved. I get the feeling that that was kind of your jumping off point, but quickly became something else. That, that was my, my jumping off point. And so, you know, there's, you know, you look back and there's like, you can clearly see how it all fits together. But, uh, you know, when you're going through it, there's no, no obviousness to it at all. And by the way, I think we should almost go back to like summer camp because I think that's where I actually learned how to do a lot of the stuff uh, that is actually more required for entrepreneurship. So we'll talk about that maybe if I can get ourselves back to that. <laughs> but uh, with regards to the question you asked, I in fourth year, I, I got really passionate about it. this kind of became a theme. It took me a while to find stuff that I really fell in love with. And, you know, and it was, you know, kind of getting out of the house and me deciding what was important. And so I fell in love with Ultimate Frisbee. I, I got very passionate about the game, learning it, playing it you know, competing. And that led me to competing in North America and actually going, to, I went on exchange for a year to Germany and competed there and played with a bunch of folks. And it was just really fun. And I, and I, I brought back from that, how they ran tournaments in Europe. And this is actually a good entrepreneurial lesson is, hey, different markets do things differently. In Europe, the ultimate Frisbee tournaments, most people go and camp. You stay there, they provide food, you know, 
it's like a tent city. You wake up the next day. It's much more of a kind of a community game. In North America, a lot of times there's the fields, people show up, they play, they leave. And it's not the same kind of community thing. And so I, I came back after that experience at the end of third year and before kind of leaving the business program and said, I'm going to, I'm going to bring a tournament. And that was my first business. And to, to do that tournament, I had to learn how to build web pages because I had to share information, let people register, all this kind of stuff. And so I started building websites. And this is literally 1999. And so that's how I got going. And then, you know, we fast forward a year or two, the caterer I got introduced to, he needed a website and started building websites for other people. And then started building that business up. And then one day I saved over an invoice and said, there's got to be a better way to do this and built a piece of software to build my clients. And that turned into FreshBooks, which now has had, you know, over 30 million people use it in over a hundred countries. We have paying customers and 500 people, all that good stuff. So that, that was kind of the journey. And, and, you know, I think, what do you, what do you recognize in that is, you know, I got more out of just getting into things, deciding in fourth year, rather than studying the books, I would, I would work at like, how do I, how do I run a tournament? You know, how do I market that tournament? How do I get the word out? What do I need to do? Logistics, everything else. And that really got me going, you know, more so than say cracking a textbook. Clearly there was an evolution and you mentioned that kind of founder story about having to write an invoice and accidentally erasing over it and then realizing that there was a business there. I want to come back to that going from an idea to having a bona fide business, which you did with FreshBooks, but I can't ignore what you just said before. Before we get to that point, tell me about summer camp and what you learned about entrepreneurship <laughs> that changed your life. Yeah, well, so I think the, th- the thing about what I learned at summer camp had to do with the one I went to, which is a little different than most. And the hero at that camp, I would say, was canoe tripping. And so my last two years there as a staff member, I led a 36-day canoe trip and I led a 44-day canoe trip where I had a group of, you know, in our case, it was sort of teenage young men, myself, another counselor. And we were out in the woods going lake to lake, covering uh, in kilometers, probably 30 to 40 kilometers on an average day, you know, always moving and, you know, just outdoors the whole time. And when you are doing something like that. First of all, you need to have some experience, which I got as a camper because I did some of that. But you're out there, you're on your own. You're you're kind of the no one else is going to make decisions for you. <laughs> you have a team you got to keep together. You know, sometimes there were periods with various counselors and staff members over the time where you, you've got to negotiate that relationship and keep the you know thing heading in the the right direction and motivate the team to get up and, and push hard every day. And and you know, and you learned one of the most valuable lessons I learned in reflection was I was on trips as a camper that were called push trips where we went really far and they felt hard. And then as a counselor, I really do think, you know, I ran a bunch of push trips and they didn't feel that way. And, and you learn, oh, this, what's the difference? And it's kind of like leadership, right? Does it feel hard or is it easy to go far? And, and so, and then like, how do you cultivate some of that? So anyways, there's a bunch of squishy stuff that when you look back on it, oh, I guess the other super, super important thing is when you're on a canoe canoe trips like that, my favorite part is actually portaging, which is like, you know, you'd have a, I'd have probably a 40 or 50 pound pack on my back in a canoe that was kind of 75, 85 pounds. And you go, you know, sometimes 1500 meters, two, three kilometers, right. And you're like running through the bush with this stuff on and, and it hurts, you know, and I like to run when I was doing it. So it's like, I, just, just putting one foot in front of the other and just kind of moving and, and showing up and you're sore from the last portage. When you start that one takes 500 meters to loosen up again. But I just, I just liked 
the perseverance aspect and the just like just one more step and that's all there is going on in the world right now was really great. And then you get the physical fitness and stuff from which turns into mental fitness. So long story short, I think being an entrepreneur is what I call like a lifestyle occupation. You kind of have to put your or lifestyle, you know, it is a lifestyle. It's not a career because, you know, it's kind of happening all the way around the clock. Like the demands are, you know, it's not nine to five, right, at, at all in any way on any dimension. And but I but I choose that. I would rather have my work life be a lifestyle of sorts, as challenging as that can be at times, as utterly overwhelming or gutting or taxing or however it is, but it, it's just more fulfilling. So anyhow, that's uh, in, in my opinion. It's not for everyone, but uh, yeah. I love how you use this term squishy, like as in squishy skills, when really what you're talking about are some of the core leadership concepts like perseverance, maybe some of the things that are harder to put down into a list or even measure and yet are so important, especially at the beginning of a new business. You started FreshBooks somewhere around 2003. And as as I recall, that was not the greatest of time to have an internet-based tech startup. I mean, we were just coming out of the tech bubble. You spent three point, you know, three and a half years in your mom's basement building this business. Talk about some of the skills necessary to go from like a good idea to a bona fide business. Well, let's start with the first thing which is you have to know your customer. So for me, the, the great, you know, I just love finding a customer, really trying to deeply unearth and understand their problem, and then solving it in a way that gives them satisfaction. And so the success of my consulting agency before FreshBooks was it was all kind of referral based. Once I got customers, they would like, in many cases, they're like, I don't want to tell anyone you exist. You're my secret <laughs> weapon. Yeah. And that was a, that was a you know beautiful thing. The, the same is true when you're incubating an idea for like a new technology and what have you. You need to understand the customer, what's going on in their world, therefore kind of the market, you know where it's at, and then I guess layer in a little bit of sort of forward vision. Not everybody possesses that, but you know for me, I generally I talk with somebody and it's like oh I can see where that goes, and sometimes they can't see where it goes, but and then you start you start building towards that and you start giving them parts of the puzzle and you get feedback. And you stay close to that customer and you learn and you iterate. So I think at the heart of it is that, right? And, and not getting too away from that. You know, there were times in our earliest days at FreshBooks where it was so early, we didn't have any customers yet. We were just kind of building in a corner. And then you get stuff in front of people and you realize, oh, it's not quite what they, they needed. And you either have to backtrack or, or what have you. And then we developed a very good discipline about re- being really close to our customers to the tune where still to this day, everyone spends their first month in customer service at FreshBooks, which is, I just think, you know, important for grounding you into who do we serve? How do we serve them? All that good stuff. So my point is, I think that married with perseverance, <laughs> you know, I found, you know, my motivation, like I've never been really motivated extrinsically by, by you gotta, you gotta, I, I would, I would persevere through periods of relatively less income, like living in my parents' basement and, you know, you know, having a 20 year old car that was breaking down and all that stuff because, because I, I got the satisfaction from trying to solve the problems of building a business and, and uh, knowing the customer and what have you. So, so that was, uh, that's where my motivation came from. And we just kept going. 
You know, it's an interesting point when you're talking about finding out what your customers' needs are. And one thing I've found in really innovative businesses is often the customer doesn't actually know their needs. And sometimes it's you who's helping show them that. I've heard you say about FreshBooks, we were the cloud before there was a cloud. Was it hard to sell this concept to people back in 2003? Did they they get it? The short answer is some did. Many, you might argue most, sort of did not. And to me, it was just obvious. Like, we have the internet. Like, I get my email through this thing. Like, you know, whatever. Of course, all the software should be here now. But back then, you know, we had our website up and people were coming to us saying, hey, can you put this thing on a CD for me? I really want to run my, (laughs) oh. And like, we almost did it because we were so cash strapped. But uh, yeah, the, we were cloud before cloud. Like there was no no concept of the cloud yet. There were some other sort of analogous kinds of things, but but it, it you know it was just obvious. So we were we were fortunate. There was a big change going on, and we again, it's like if it's obvious, and the world's not there yet, like start working on that now because that's probably a big opportunity. <laughs> You mentioned a little bit ago this idea of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivations. It sounds to me, at least for you, a lot of this was a passion play. But there are many people right now in business school who really the drive behind starting these new businesses is to make money. Can you do that? Can you come to these type of businesses with money being your main goal, or does it really have to spring from something deeper? I will express my beliefs, and you know they are what they are, but or maybe I should call them biases. Like first of all, I believe you can do it anyway, right? So there'll be going to be somebody who's successful. All they care about is money, but you know I, I think that's a little perverted from the outset. I, I think for for me and, and being an entrepreneur, what people don't talk about is it's it's not often glamorous. Those people who you hold up as success, you know, they were 10, 15, 20 years in the making sometimes, and they went through like some awful stuff. And people don't don't get that necessarily, or they don't want that, or they're in business school. And I, what's interesting, this internet period, you know, with the internet out there now sharing all this information, like it is, you know, I run into entrepreneurs now who they, they kind of have all the words and none of the heart. And I just, I'm never interested in those folks. I just, I don't want to spend time with people like that in my life. Like it's, it's empty. Right. And it's like, you're chasing an end game. Whereas, you know, I want to play, I want to play the infinite game. I want to like find a customer who I can just, you know, keep discovering ways to serve versus looking at them as like the path to me having dollars in my bank. Like that's just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Now, some people, their ambition is driven by security and, Motivation comes from all kinds of places. But uh, yeah, for me, it's about finding a customer, serving them, using the passion to have the energy to get through the times that will not be good. I don't think wanting to make money gets you through the hard times. Do you think this was a product of your upbringing? I've seen you say before, I didn't grow up in a household where there was much positive reinforcement. I found that quote in an interview you did. Do you think some of this drive for you kind of springs from childhood? You know, maybe the some of the hard headedness or what have you that they can crop up along the way. I think, in many ways, I had the most extraordinary, supportive, you know, relatively more advantaged economic background, which it just is what it is. And so, you know, some people have motivation to really get up. I think I had an ex. I had there was a high expectation, I would say, in our household that you you know you would achieve and do something. 
uh, the two things you knew growing up in the house were like, you're going to get A's and you're going to go to undergrad and then you're on your own. Right. And so that was like, I don't think anyone ever sat down and told me those two things, but there was never a moment of doubt that that's what was expected of me. And that colored, you know, a bunch of my formative years until I was like, okay, I'm on track for that. And that's when I really started finding my way. So, you know, I'm lucky to have done that. Not everybody kind of gets off the prescribed track and really finds their own path. And that's when I think I really started getting on the entrepreneurial path. And I don't think I'd be here today if I was still kind of living someone else's expectations. So let's pivot a little bit to this idea of growing FreshBooks, right? So we talked about where the ideas came from. We talked about how you moved from undergrad into owning your own businesses. But again, to go from a good idea or even a burgeoning business to something as big as FreshBooks really takes a lot of growth. I'm going to quote you again here. I've heard you say every problem's a people problem and every solution is a people solution. Talk to me about building a team to help build your business. When I got started, I'd never worked anywhere else. I actually didn't know anything about the technology industry you know, had kind of a newspaper awareness of 2001 and the crash and everything like that. But it was it was pretty remote. I started teaching myself how to build websites. Yes, I took some computer science courses, but those were pretty academic. Like I really had no grounding in industry. So I mean, I had no network. I was really just working with, you know, the people I kind of knew and a little bit of network there. I didn't have any cash to go out and hire somebody. Wouldn't have known a good engineer if I, you know, they sort of smacked me in, over the head with a <laughs> something. So So my point is, I I didn't know anything. And so we started out with just a team of sort of good people, like that wanted to work on the thing together. So it's kind of like this really prizing loyalty and, you know, their interest in doing it and doing it together. And I think that was really great. And then we started hiring over time. We hired some people who had some experience, maybe worked at Microsoft or inside another software company. And that was like, oh, these people are bringing us all kinds of goodness we had no clue about. And they had been managers in those companies. That was great. And then you go through another phase where you start to outgrow people, even those people who came from Microsoft. And, and it gets hard to go ahead and, and sort of swap people out along the way. And you, you try and repot them in another part of the business and all that good stuff. And it's just you know, those are, those are kind of faces. So that that's, the growth is really hard. A lot of it was, you know, held up by my own ability to grow and keep pace with things at various times, but you know, don't look back with regrets. It's just kind of how it is and was. So that was all that. And then, you know, so how do you make a team that, that kind of gets organized? I, I like to talk about two things. I think you need two things in life and also in business, but life is the prime that to be successful, which is uh, what I call shared values and alignment. And if you have those two things, I think you can figure pretty much anything out. So, you know, in the basement days when we had people who didn't know anything about the industry, who weren't great at what they did or what have you, what did we have? We had shared values and alignment. You know, as we brought new people in, you know, like what did we have? We had shared values and alignment. And we were kind of taking on the world, trying to figure it out. Cloud before cloud, this industry didn't exist. We were doing nutty stuff off in a corner. But what we always had was this shared values and alignment. And I think that has um, had has just been a consistent theme throughout, and it's taken us a long, long way. In the first half of the show, Mike talked about how FreshBooks came to be. After the break, we'll discuss how to turn an idea into a business. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? 
Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Shield, an AI-powered platform that helps global financial enterprises meet increasingly complex communications compliance rules. Shield addresses an $89 billion market with tools that automatically detect and alert on behaviors leading to market abuse, employee misconduct, and information sharing. You can get in early on Shield and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash EAI. The R-Crowd account is free. Just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. You mentioned a bit ago that sometimes you had to grow along with the business, and that was difficult, right? You kind of said, you know, no looking back, we're moving forward, et cetera. But can you think of a time where you had trouble, where you got caught and couldn't grow with the business and how you got over that? So first you got to understand yourself. And, you know, what I have come to learn over the years is I can figure stuff out in real time that other people need to go away and reflect and, you know, think about it. And they come back and they might come back with a better answer, a different answer, whatever, but I can generally get there now. And so stylistically, I think for me, I I, I probably in a meeting or whatever, I would just kind of have the answers. And so that kind of feels directive and off we go and ran the company like that for a long time. And people talk about, you know, founders being like this, right? Listen, we made a lot of really good decisions. We had a lot of success. <laughs> and in a lot of cases, what I found, and this is, you know, going to be the, the hard thing, and I don't want to be the hero here, but until I hired what I will call our first executive, which came at about the, you know, 100, 120 person mark, that was the first time I was like, oh, this is someone who really kind of for the first time, kind of like my peer in, in decision-making and and they can go do stuff for me. I had a real partner and they can kind of manage me, but I'm like, I'm good with that. You know, I want to be managed. The only reason I'm handing out these answers is because the other ones aren't happening fast enough or they're not good enough. And I don't want to, I don't want to settle. I don't want to compromise. And so, but then it's like you build a team around you and then you have to transition to like, okay, put the, put the answers in the pocket, get a group of these people and let them kind of run things. And how do you, how do you support them? So that kind of what it looked like over the years and some of the pieces. And now it's, yeah, it's very much, you can spend time on where we go on everybody. Is everybody clear on that? Do we have enough dollars in the bank to go ahead and go after it? And, you know, that's kind of the team, the vision and, and build the team, curate the team to go up for the job. Like those are the three jobs of, of a CEO. And I guess now I got to figure out what it is for the executive chair, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's been a good, you know, that's, 
it, it, it's different than than it was way back when. And I was like, we need answers. I've got them. Let's go. Let's go back to those early days. In some ways, it sounds like at times you had to be prescriptive. Were you worried about being loved by your employees or was it more about respect? For, for me, I've always, and you know, this might be loaded for somebody else, but for me, it's always been about doing the right thing. Right. And so, you know, when you have a pretty clear sense of what that is, and it's just like, we just got to go faster, that can manifest as kind of this now. You know, now the right thing could also look like if I misstepped and either said too much or was too blunt or whatever, going find that person and apologizing, letting them know that I like it doesn't mean like I, I'm not into like not having that side of it as well. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're right all the time. Yes, I've got, you know, 99 of the 100 answers now, but oh, I'll tell you I'm wrong or I heard something better. Let's do that. Like that was never so much a problem for me. I don't know that ever buddy understood that, but that's probably because I didn't, things weren't clearing the bar for me, <laughs> which is, you know, it's rough, but you know, I think that's sometimes how it is, right? Like you don't want to compromise, don't want to settle. If you see something better though, we'll adopt it immediately. Like that's, that's hard for people to get their head around. And especially when nobody is really that competent yet in building these things. And there's lots of great uncertainty and we don't have a ton of time. So anyhow, it gives you a flavor of things. You know, it's an interesting question as I'm listening to you talk about building FreshBooks and then thinking about this move out of CEO, I kind of wonder, like, how do you define the finish line for yourself when it comes to this entity? Like, you're looking at FreshBooks, you started it on a dream, an idea, you systemically built it to what it is today. When's enough? So, so a couple of thoughts, and just as a point of clarity, you know, all that directiveness and whatever, that was like the first seven to 10 years. And the last 10 years has been trying to be far more responsible and, and more of a you know senior leader and all that stuff. So it's been a, a good 10 years. It's not like I was doing that start of the month and now I'm no longer <laughs> CEO. Was, that, that, those ways kind of went away a long, long time ago, or I tried to manage and manage them out of things. But so back to your question, you found this company 20 years ago, you led it for basically 20 years. And, you know, now you're transitioning to a new role and, and when is enough? Like, can't you just go do something else? And so the, the challenge for me gets to be a couple things. The first is I, I feel like there's so much we haven't done yet. Like there's so much still in my head. Like we, we are scratching the surface on, you know, the vision for the company has been for me. The, the product in particular is a draw. Like there's just so much unrealized there that is still to be done. And to put things in perspective, like I'm sticking around in part because we'll probably spend quarter to half a billion dollars building software over the next 10 years. And I got a pretty good idea on a lot of what that should look like and, and can help the organization do a better job. So that for me is exciting and will impact so many customers uh, and, and small business owners out there by, by doing that. And, and I feel like the world doesn't have yet what I want to bring to it. So that's, you know, that's that's huge. And, and I get to continue to contribute in that way in this role, which is which is wonderful. I think the other thing is just the, the mission behind FreshBooks, which we we execute extraordinary experiences every day for, for owners, small business owners to help them run their, you know, their business and be more successful, which I just feel good about. We didn't talk a lot about it here, but you know, FreshBooks has this extraordinary service level associated with it. it always has. You know, you can phone us up to get a real life person, competent answer straight away, like that's just part of how we do things. We focus a lot on the user experience of our software. And I just feel very good about being a part of an organization that does that for people 
in small business owners cases who, who don't have a lot of time. They really need something like this and we're helping to lift them up. So I feel really good about the mission. And, you know, sure. You have a thought here and again, it's like, Oh, should I do something else or whatever? And it's like, man, what, what's going to hold a candle to this, a mission that I, I just love. And then, uh, you know, a thing that we're building out and I have some other companies I founded and stuff like that, but fresh books is really, it's kind of top of the heap, which is very lucky. And I, I'm enormously privileged to have a partner in our now CEO, Don, who still wants me around the board as well, who is enabling me to continue on as an executive to, to help realize our goals. Do you miss at all that small startup environment? I mean, there is something thrilling about being at the beginning. You know, so what I like is the creation and the designing. I think those are the two, the, the big things for me. Like I'm, I, in my heart, and people may not think this or know this, but I, I kind of see my, I'm like a designer. Like give me these inputs. I can give you a pretty good picture of what we should do. And I, I, and I care about how we design it and roll it out. And that can be like how we, you know, do the culture or the customer experience or the product. You know, I love sort of designing those, those things. So I think for me that the designing thing is really interesting. So as you get larger, you got to go through process and, you know, there's a greater percentage of your time when you're waiting for things to catch up or get them aligned and get them organized. Fortunately, in this new role, I get to spend more of my time on the design stuff than I got to as CEO. So, so that's, that's exciting for me. And you have different, there's different challenges at a smaller stage, but I, I, I do think what I really like, and I think a super strength is being in an environment where it's not clear what to do or where to go. And so I like the design in a product in a big organization because you're like figuring that out. But in a small organization, it's literally like, what are we, where are we? And I, I just love getting dropped into that. There's some other people that's a very uncomfortable place. I think that's like, I have super strengths in that environment of figuring out where to go and why. One of the things I've noticed in my life, and I think it applies here, is as you get more successful, you have the luxury of moving away from worrying about the product as much as being into the moment-to-moment process. And as you're talking about being dropped into these difficult situations, I get a sense of that joy of being in the midst of it. Figuring things out is now very enjoyful or causes a lot of enjoyment for you, as opposed to worrying about, we have to make sure we have this end product and it's successful and it does what it needs to do. Yeah, I, I'm more concerned with designing the target state than figuring out how it hits on time and gets delivered on time. And, you know, I can do both of those things and have for a lot of years. But yeah. And to be honest, when you think about it, you know, it's, you know, one of them is easier to hire for than the other. <laughs> so looking at the young entrepreneurs and college and business grads today, do you think there's something they're lacking that you've learned over the years that they should be starting with? First of all, I think the the, the talent of, of young people, it gets extraordinary. I think in many cases that folks I meet are just way ahead of where, where I ever was. And, you know, that's one part internet, you know, just evolution, everything like that. So, so I, I think it's, you know, it'd be a little bit armchair quarterback to sit there and, and say something like that. And I think the thing they're mostly missing in a lot of cases is experience, <laughs> which, you know, just takes time. So, I, I, you know, where I would maybe go with something like this is I just, I think sometimes it gets really hard to know what you want to do or where you want to go. And into that, I was just, and same with starting a business is, is just start, just start something, you know, sitting around trying to think about it, I would say is worse than just getting going. And even if you pick a small project or something to dip your toe in. So I think that's, you know, that, that's a thing of bias to, to doing something 
is uh, is a big thing. But you know, I I don't know that that's an age or education depending kind of thing. And looking back at your own trajectory, any big regrets or something you can clearly look back and say, boy, I would have done that different with what I know now. It's complicated. Few to, I have little to, to none of that. I, I, I think that the big things for me are like little moments like, hey, could I have said that? Could I have done things in a way where fewer kind of like side apologies were necessary? I didn't demotivate somebody or, or what have you. And, you know, I, I think that that would be good, but also got to be honest with myself and say, that's where I was at. And I think there's a lot less of that today. And you know, part of the success is maybe you're biased to, to one way or another. And so I, I don't know, but that, that's a look back. The interpersonal things, could I have landed that message, you know, sooner, better, faster, clearer, you know, less in the event it did, it was off putting to somebody in a little bit, a little bit better way. But that's, that's the journey of leadership again and experience. And some people come baked out of the box with that. They don't have other things. And for me, that was, it was, uh, you know, that's part of the journey is rounding out some of those edges. And I don't know what to say. That's just is what it is. Do you think you're more empathic than you were when you started this voyage? I have always been more empathic than people realize based on how I presented that would be the way I would put it. I, I would say what I've learned to do over time and with a lot of effort is is to try and overcome my biases. Like we all have biases and reactions and things like that, that, you know, will lead you into whether it's under stress or whatever it is, you behave in a certain way. And so it doesn't mean you're not, at least for me, I would say, well, I understand how it's not great for you, but <laughs> maybe I, yeah, I couldn't help myself from like handing you the answer right now. Cause I just, I'm too impatient. And so now it's like, okay, why don't you come back to me in a week with your thoughts? Right. It's a, it's, it's a, you know, you learn different styles and ways of doing things. So I think that's, that is different. So we're talking with Mike McDermott, co-founder and former CEO of FreshBooks. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode, which is by asking you what's up next in your life. And if people want to know more about either you or FreshBooks, where can they find you on the internet? Well, so for me, what's next, I guess, is this transition to executive chair. But that that looks a lot like the last 18 months have looked like for me with more focus on, hey, what is the platform that we're building out? Continue to do things like this to be a public representative for the company as the founder. I always have a special place there, fortunately. Yeah, and just helping to continue to lead the team and further our culture as we, we really kick off the next phase of the organization's development. I'm also spending more time just on like, hey, what companies should we buy and why? Like, which is it's just you know a neat new career uh, thing. So that's I get to partner with folks on that, which is great. So so that's kind of hey, same role but more tilted towards the stuff I love versus you know having to do some of the day to day things. So that's that's nice and that's that's the next bit. And then so yeah, if if you still want to after all this, uh, learn a little <laughs> more about me. You know, pretty pretty easy to find online. You can look at uh, go to freshbooks.com and I encourage you to do so if you're a business owner and you want a simpler or easier way to, to send invoices, track your expenses, basically manage your books on your phone or the web. So go check out freshbooks.com. There's a free trial there. And then, you know, alternatively, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably the, the, the platform that I'm most engaged in, but pretty sporadic there as well. Two heads down, getting stuff done most of the time. So, but I'm just at Mike McDermott there. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Mike McDermott of FreshBooks. That's a wrap. Hey. 
Hey, earners and investors, welcome back to the community segment. I just wanted to remind you, if you are enjoying the conversations we're having here at Earn and Invest, the best way to continue the conversation, even on days that are not Monday and Thursday when an episode drops, is to go over to the Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. Again, that's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. We talk about just about everything there from politics to personal finance to financial independence retire early you name it we discuss it there and also if you want to be part of this earner and investor segment this is a great place to interact which brings me to a comment by john stoy on episode 195 freedom when to say goodbye to your nine to five that episode dropped last monday John Stoy comments, another great episode. I shouldn't have been surprised to note that it was balanced as well. The almost blind support of entrepreneurship by the FIRE, that's Financial Independence Retire Early Community, is one thing that makes me uncomfortable in general, and I like how you all spoke about preparing for an entrepreneurial leap, as well as returning to corporate. Survivorship bias is huge, in my opinion, in the way the FIRE community pushes entrepreneurship and is somewhat dangerous. We all look at things through our own lenses. That's true, and admittedly, mine aren't as rose-colored when it comes to entrepreneurship as some others. My entrepreneurial journey has likely prevented me from achieving financial independence and most recently, firing. On top of that, I had three employees in my food business who were working for me specifically because they took entrepreneurial leaps, opened small businesses that failed, and were then forced to work in jobs that certainly paid them less than they had earned in ages. I also did some pro bono financial planning for a lady who started a business with a friend. They both not only used regular savings, but withdrew money from their retirement plans to start their businesses, which failed. This lady will likely have to work for the rest of her life. People need to be very careful, more careful than most are when striking out their own. Paying off debt and even a mortgage is a good start, which was awesome to hear. It's a huge advantage for sure, but also a good plan for what to do if it doesn't work out is extremely important as well. Well, John, thank you for your comment. There are a few really great things about this comment. One is survivorship bias, and it is true, especially in the financial independence community or on social media in general, you're much more likely to hear about the ventures that worked, right? So people are always trumpeting their successes on social media, but you don't hear as much talk of failures. So this idea of survivorship bias, of us only hearing about what works and maybe not hearing about the myriad of failures that no one talks about is very true and can get you in trouble. Listen, entrepreneurship is not easy and in some ways it's risky. And this brings up a good point. I think for a lot of us, we need to learn how to take these entrepreneurial jumps, but do it in as safe a way as possible. And I think we can do this really in three specific ways. One is don't quit your day job. That's right. The old saying goes, don't quit your day job. If you're really looking to start a new business, instead of leaving your nine to five and jumping in full force, it might make sense to do that business during your off hours and on weekends, at least as you start it like a side hustle, until you're sure it's generating revenue. That way you have your W-2 income from your nine to five and can protect yourself because we all know lots of businesses and side hustles fail. They just don't make the money. Money we're hoping they will, and this is a good way to protect yourself. Another way to help is 
do what I call a lazy side hustle or start a lazy business. So if you are, for instance, like I was a doctor, when I decided to start my own business, the best way to do that was a concierge medical business. Why do I call that a lazy business or a lazy side hustle? Well, because I already knew how to be a doctor. So the truth of the matter is, I did have to gain skills to run my own business and set up my own practice, but the majority of what I was doing was something I was already skilled at. So let's say you are a CPA and you work for a big five accounting company and you decide you want to go off on your own and start your own CPA business. That again is what I would call a quote unquote lazy side hustle or lazy entrepreneurship It's not lazy because you're not working. It's lazy because you already have paid for and gotten the skills you need to succeed. So you have all these degrees already. You've already established yourself in this field. Use that to start a business. Another one for doctors is often we do medical expert work. So you might be working as a physician. You can start doing medical expert work. And because you have already trained and practiced as a physician, you really already have all the knowledge you need to do that job. So rely on the lazy side hustles. You're just much more likely to succeed. And that's why I've always started with them. And last but not least, if you're going to start a new business, try starting one which requires very little money. So a low-cost startup business is really the way to go. The amazing thing about the internet and social media is a lot of it requires hustle, but most of it is also free. So if you're looking to start a new business, it might make sense to start with very little money, show proof of concept, work on your selling skills, right? Because any business that you own, you're really either going to have to sell yourself or sell a product. And then once it starts taking off, That's a good time to reinvest the profits. So lean startup, start with very little money, show that the concept can work, and then, then you're ready to invest. So this all comes down to the fact that starting a new business is not easy. You put yourself at risk, especially if you're going to leave your nine to five, you've got to do it as intelligently as possible. So if you don't quit your day job and do it on nights and weekends to start with, If you do a lazy side hustle or start lazy entrepreneurship, meaning you use the skills that you've already gone to school for or paid for or gotten through experience, and then if you use lean startup methods, you're much more likely to succeed. But not only that, you're much more likely to fail safely, which means if you don't succeed, at least you're not going to lose all your money. You're not going to use up your retirement savings, and hopefully you're not going to hinder your path to either financial independence or at least financial security, which is really important. I wanted to thank John Stoy for his comment. He is certainly talking here about being an earner, but as I always say, when you're earning, you're also investing in your future. This is something we've all thought about. We've all thought about starting our own businesses. I guess the key is we need to do it as safely and intelligently as possible. Cool. 
Well, I hope some of that stuff doesn't get taken out of context, but it's all good. I've, I've said things like it in the past and it's all true. So that's, uh, you know, I probably sound like a complete monster with where I sort of leaned into in the bias with uh, the management leadership styles, but whatever. What are you gonna do? No, I mean, you know, to me, you sound like someone who had a very clear vision of what you thought was right and needed to be done and now as someone who has done this for 20 years like anyone else says yeah i did what i needed to do there's sometimes i could have been better sometimes i could have been worse but that's where i'm at and you grow and that's why i asked you about empathy a little bit at the end too because i think i don't know if you can my suspicion is that if you don't have some of that single focus if you aren't as prescriptive at the beginning things just don't get done Right. Or the wrong shit gets done, right? Like yeah. you're, this is back to alignment. No, this, like, this is what I need done. Right. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah. And someone has to make those difficult decisions sometimes, right? You know, you can't have a business where no one makes the decisions because everyone's too afraid because they don't feel like they have enough information, right? So at some point, someone has to be willing to step into the breach and say, okay, this is what we're doing because this is the best I got at the moment. And I can't imagine anyone having a successful business after 20 years and not looking back and saying, okay, maybe I was a touch flippant there, but we had to get it done and this is the way we went. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, yeah, listen, I, I don't look back with, you know, air quotes regret on, on this stuff, but yeah. Can you look back and how can you improve? Absolutely. That's the, right. it's the nature of things, but, uh, no, it's great. I, uh, no, thanks Fran. And, and by the way, having done a bunch of these, I appreciate the, uh, the interview style and just kind of coming at things a little, little differently. So kudos to you. I don't know if that came naturally out of the box or is a, uh, a developed skill, but, uh, that was great. I enjoyed it. Yeah. It's a little bit of both. My, my goal is, um, like, I think every person I interview is like, in a sense, I wouldn't want to have you on the show unless I thought you were a superstar. So my goal is to really figure out, well, why are you a superstar? And what are, what are the stories that maybe other people don't know or haven't heard about what makes you a superstar? So if I can get my people that I interview to say their most interesting, cool things about themselves, if I can pull that out of them during the interview, um, I just think it turns into a great conversation. And so my intentions always are, you know, like, I think you're great. You're someone people should really hear from. How can I ask these really important questions? Yeah. Because my goal is, right, I should be, you should hear my voice 3% of the podcast, right? The other 97% should be you. So how do I use that little bit, that, you know, 3 to 5% where I'm using my words to ask good enough questions to get you to just go?